Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune and this week's episode is The Capetian Miracle Ends. Before we start today's episode, I just want to say thank you. To everyone who has downloaded and listened, I am grateful. If you have time, please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Join me on Facebook and Instagram, as well as Twitter, and share the show with any friends who might like it. Also, I'm recovering from COVID. I'm vaccinated and boosted, so it's much easier than it would have been otherwise. Just be aware I may sound a little stuffy. I hope it's not too distracting. Now on to this Capetian mess. For our second miniseries, we move forward two centuries. We'll come back, I promise. I really want to discuss Henry II's heirs, but I need a break from the English. So, we're going to Paris, the court of Philip IV, or the Fair, as in handsome, not even-handed. It is now March 1314. Over the last seven years, Philip has been suppressing the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon. Today... The 11th or 18th of the month, depending on sources, he will execute Jacques de Molay, the leader of this religious order, and be cursed. Within two months, his co-conspirator, Pope Clement V, will die. In less than a year, his family will fall apart. And within three years, the longest unbroken chain of direct father-to-son royal inheritance will end. Within 14 years, none of his descendants will rule France. It will be 12 generations before they do again. Though they will continue to rule in England through his daughter and rule in Spain within eight generations. I may be joking about curses being real. While there are records of de Molay cursing the king, I, for one, don't buy the curse theory. But it makes for an enjoyable opening. The poor fellow soldiers, let's keep it easy. The Knights Templar, as everyone called them, are an easy group to blame. More likely, the stress of events over the next year will lead to Philip's early death. The Pope's death is equally explained by stress and natural causes. The disintegration of his family can be attributed to poor marriage choices for two of his sons. And finally, the end of his line ruling can be blamed on a lack of medical care in a much less advanced time, when infant mortality was not uncommon and diseases took out even the healthy. Before I get too far ahead of myself... I should introduce this series as past. They are Joan II, Queen of Navarre, but not France, and that's what we're focusing on. 
Her cousins, Joan III, Countess of Burgundy, and Blanche of France, Duchess of Orléans, will share an episode. And finally, the she-wolf herself, Isabella of France, Queen of England. The first three are the oldest surviving children of Philip the Fair's three sons. The final is his only daughter, the widow of Edward II, and the mother of Edward III of England. Now, before anyone says it, yes, technically all monarchs of France, save the Bonapartes, are Capetians. They're just cadet branches, descended from younger surviving sons of the main line. But the death of John I, or Jean Le Postume, on the 20th of November, 1316, brought direct father-to-son succession from Hugh Capet to an end. How do these four women fit into the part of our past? Well, first, they were each legitimate, or declared legitimate, I'll come to that a few times, heirs to previous kings. Because the Capetians were worse than the Normans with using the same selection of names, tradition was to name an oldest son after his grandfather and a second son after his father, hence the high number of Philips and Louis in the family. I will need to go over who people are before we even start. I do apologize because this is actually the easy part of naming everyone. First is the paterfamilis, Philip IV, or the Fair, which is what I will refer to him as, king from 1285 to 1314. The French royal family has been described as very beautiful since at least Louis IX two generations earlier. All four of Philip's surviving children were considered exceptionally beautiful. Philip himself has also been described as almost statue-like, devoutly religious, and very close to his wife and children. His wife, whom he was devoted to, having no known illegitimate children, was Joan I, Queen of Navarre. His children, in order, were the future Louis X, or the Quarrelsome, king from 1314 to 1316, the father of our first past, Joan II. Philip V, or the Tall, king from 1316 to 1322, the father of our second past, Joan III. Charles IV, or the Fair, Creative, king from 1322 to 1328, the father of our third past, Blanche. And finally, Isabella of France, our fourth past. So these women have a clear length, each to a previous monarch. They were the oldest or only surviving child. Why were they passed over? This first episode has it all. Beautiful people, religious arguments, and sex scandals. This one would probably have killed any king. I think even Henry VIII would have been at risk of death. Enter the second great scandal of Philip the Fair's reign, the Tour de Nel affair. Philip's sons, Louis, Philip, and Charles, were all married to women with the of Burgundy in their names. Louis's wife was Margaret of Burgundy, daughter of the Duke of Burgundy. Margaret was Joan II's mother. Philip's wife was Joan of Burgundy, daughter of the Count of Burgundy. Joan III was her daughter. And Charles was married to her younger sister, Blanche of Burgundy. She does not have any surviving children. In case you're curious, the county and the duchy of Burgundy are geographically distinct areas that share a border and a history. I will be posting a family tree on Facebook to help. I'll be honest, every time I read about this affair, I am shocked. <laughs> this would be a sex scandal in this day. I can only imagine what it would have been like in the 14th century. 
1314, Philip the Fair was informed of something unsettling by his daughter during her visit to France. A year earlier in England, she had noticed that purses she had gifted two of her sisters-in-law, Margaret and Blanche, were on the persons of two visiting French knights, brothers Walter and Philip of Une. She may have found it odd that such a personal gift had been passed on to men of much lower rank. Philip the Fair is often portrayed in movies, books, and TV series as ruthless and cold, but most contemporary descriptions point towards a very proper Stoic man who was aiming to emulate his grandfather, St. Louis, or Louis IX. He had arranged his children's marriages in a way that would be expected at the time, for security, territorial claims, treaties, or a military protection. His own marriage was arranged via a treaty, and was deeply successful. He said to have mourned his wife's passing greatly and did not remarry despite being only 37 years old when she died. He also didn't want to bring scandal to his daughter's-in-law if there was a mistake, but the news would have been deeply upsetting. He placed the knights under surveillance. When he had enough proof to act, he did so swiftly. Margaret and Blanche had been found to be consorting with the knights, drinking, and eating with them in private in the guard tower on the Seine. The knights were arrested and confessed under brutal torture. I'm not going to go into the details of said torture. Philip had Margaret and Blanche arrested on the grounds of infidelity, and his third daughter-in-law, Joan, arrested on the grounds that she knew and did nothing to stop it or to inform him. All three were imprisoned at Chateau Gaillard. During my research for the series, I read a very interesting book aptly titled The Romance of Adultery by Peggy McCracken. She points to this affair as the cause for an ending of courtly romance stories about affairs between knights and princesses or queens. Up until this time, these stories were not uncommon in the popular literature of various courts. Dr. McCracken points out that these stories avoided having a product come about from the knight and the queen's relationship. After all, the king having an affair is a personal issue. The queen having an affair is a matter for the state, because any children the queen has are a possession of the state. You may be able to see the implications. There were plenty of stories before this, Arthur's Court, Tristan and Isolde, where the queen has an affair with a knight, but the consequences are either mild, none, or turning into a tree. This was not a fairy tale, and none of the bad actors would make it out of this well. And there was a small, tangible, human consequence. The knights had admitted the affairs had begun three years prior, sometime in 1311, which was very unfortunate for one of our past. Margaret's daughter, Joan II, was born in January 1312. It put her legitimacy under a shadow. I'll discuss this more in her episode, of course. In addition to having to deal with the embarrassment of being a public cockold, neither Louis nor Charles could have their marriage annulled. A new pope hadn't been elected yet and wouldn't be for another two years. This obviously isn't the first or last time a queen or princess would be accused of having an affair. Eleanor of Aquitaine and Melisande of Jerusalem, mentioned in our last series, were both accused of having affairs. The former possibly as a feeble attempt to suggest an annulment from Louis VII. The latter had her own husband encourage those that would suggest it in a power grab. 
Yes, that would be Matilda's father-in-law. And we've all heard of Henry VIII accusing two of his wives, one wrongly and one slightly more factually, of adultery. But in this case, there was clear evidence. And even modern historians are very confident that the accused are guilty of these crimes. For a man of Philip the Fair's character, this would have been shocking. Add to that his recent suppression of the Templars, his ongoing arguments with the papacy, it's no surprise that his health was probably declining. In November 1314, he suffered a stroke while hunting. He died on the 29th of November. His son Louis X succeeded him. Louis was a very different man than his father. The sobriquet, the quarrelsome, wasn't one of those jokes where one is given a nickname that is the opposite of their actual size or personality. He was truly a difficult man. Prior to her imprisonment, he and Margaret had not had a particularly good relationship. Louis's first love was real tennis, an older and indoor form of lawn tennis. To be clear, real tennis is still played. Real tennis will be to the French royals as the New Forest was to the Normans. Louis and Margaret had been married for seven years before the birth of their only child, Joan, our first subject. As I've mentioned, her legitimacy was questioned, but Louis did claim her as his own. Due to the interregnum between popes, Louis was unable to get his marriage annulled. His solution was cruel and effective. He likely had Margaret strangled in her prison. There is a possibility that she died due to illness, as being stuck in a damp, dirty cell with no sunlight and poor food is likely to cause this. This is what killed Blanche, Charles's wife. Whatever killed Margaret, Louis quickly remarried Clementia of Hungary. Clementia was about four months pregnant when Louis died in 1316, after a possibly too strenuous game of real tennis. He was 26. Philip, Louis's brother, was declared regent while awaiting the birth of the next royal child. A daughter would likely make Joan queen. A son would displace her and become king. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Capetians had been lucky, truly lucky, in two ways. First, only father-to-son succession for 300 years the longest of any recorded royal line. And second, minimal regencies for underage kings. There had only been two minorities, Philip I, the Amorous, who reigned from 1060 to 1108, was eight upon his ascension. His mother, Anne of Kiev, acted as his regent for the first years of his reign, after which his uncle by marriage, Baldwin V of Flanders, took over until Philip reached 14. Yes, this Baldwin is William the Bastard's father-in-law, and the grandfather of our first past subject, Robert Curthose. Philip I ruled before the centralization of royal power, and spent a lot of his reign battling with his barons. The second minority was that of Louis IX, probably the most famous French Louis until the Sun King. He's usually referred to as Saint Louis. Yes, the city of Saint Louis is named after him. He became king in 1226 at the age of 12. His mother, Blanche of Castile, acted as his regent until approximately 1234. She was his closest advisor and acted as his regent again when he was on the Seventh Crusade. She died while he was in the Holy Land in 1252. To call Blanche a capable leader in her own right would be an understatement. Her military prowess, diplomatic capacity, and forward thinking helped further French royal interest and consolidated control over territory. Her death was devastating to Louis and the country, much like her great-grandmother, the Empress Matilda, and her grandmother, Eleanor of Aquitaine. She shows that women were more than capable of military and political leadership, even if they may not have been able to join men on the field of battle. At least not in the 13th century. While women are perfectly capable of leading, Joan II, Joan III, Blanche, and Isabella would never get the chance to rule France. Instead, the crown would go to Philip V, then Charles IV, before going to the Valois line in the person of Philip VI. Why? Well, there are simple answers. Sexism, greed, and, oddly, ageism. But the story behind them are where things get interesting. All ruling families have a story. So before moving on to our past, I feel that I should discuss the Capetians a little more in detail. While they were almost unbelievably lucky, their claims to legitimacy and power would be laughable after Joan II of Navarre was passed over in favor of her uncle. Please do bear with me. There will be a bit of genealogy, which while interesting, is often a dry subject. In 987, Hugh Capet was elected King of the Franks. His election, like those by the Witan I discussed in our first series, was by the noblemen of France, or more precisely, Paris. His election is the foundation point of the Capetian dynasty. Prior to this, he would have been considered a member of the Robertian dynasty, one of the three post-Roman dynasties to rule the Franks. Wait, you, you say three? Dear listener, you mean, you mean two? Nope, three. <laughs> While the Merovingians and the Carolingians are easily remembered thanks to pop culture for the former and Charlemagne for the latter, 
The Robertians are often overlooked. Briefly, the Merovingians ruled most of the area of modern France, parts of modern Germany, and parts of modern Spain, from the 500s to 751. They were known for having long hair and claiming descent from a sea monster. Yes, a sea monster. Probably their most famous ruler was Clovis I, who converted to Christianity, and in doing so began the conversion of all of France. The Merovingians practiced partible inheritance, which meant that through each generation, the kingdom was divided among legitimate sons of its rulers. While each minor king would rule his own area, the kingdom was seen as one political unit that would unite as needed to see off invaders. This form of inheritance is problematic in centralizing a state. If each son expects an equal share to his brother, then centralization is next to impossible. Towards the end of the dynasty's time in leadership, the true power became the mayor of the palace. This position is often compared to a modern prime minister working within a constitutional monarchy, not unlike Australia or England today. But it is probably most similar to the shogunate period of Japanese history, where the military leader was not the emperor, but the shogun. However, the emperor was still needed for legitimacy. The final three mayors of the palace during the Merovingian period would bring their rule to an end. Charles Martel, who basically managed the territories of the Merovingians from 1718 to 1741, is also the founder of the Carolingian dynasty. He was born, illegitimately I might add, into the Pippinid dynasty. Through impressive political maneuvering, was able to consolidate power while keeping the final three Merovingian kings figureheads. After his death in 741, his two oldest sons, Carloman and Pepin the Short, would each rule half of the territory of the Franks as mayors of the palace, until November of 751, when Pepin the Short would, with the assistance of the Pope, peacefully overthrow Chelderic III and become the first Carolingian king. Chelderic and his son have their hair cut, it was the dynasty's thing after all, and were placed into a monastery, which is a much more peaceful way to end their reign than many others have had. For the purpose of linking this to a few thoughts on this series past, all Merovingian rulers were male and therefore kings, all were sons, both legitimate and natural, brothers or nephews of previous kings, with one exception. Childebret the Adopted. Childebret was the biological son of Grimald the Elder, a member of the Pippinids, the precursor to the Carolingians, who was mayor of the palace from 643 to 657. Why do I bring up this one king in relation to our past? Well, this king and his father, while not passing on the throne, do have something to do with the Carolingian claim to power. Grimald's sister, Saint Bega, is the grandmother of Charles Martel. So, previous kingship being shown through a female line, which we will see again in two interesting upcoming cases. Don't worry, I'm not going to ignore the other great dynasty of France. Pepin the Short would consolidate power and pass Frankish territory on to his two sons, following the previous dynasty's partable inheritance. These two sons would get to the point of going to war against each other for total rule of Frankish territories. His younger son, Carloman I, would die young, leaving behind two sons 
who would eventually be lost to history. Pepin's older son is Charles the Great, or Charlemagne, the man who would unite almost all Frankish, German, and Italian territory, and would come the closest to controlling all of Europe since the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Charlemagne, much like his father, was pressured to divide his territories by his nobles. They thought it was unfair to deny a son his rightful inheritance, at least in their traditions. There was one problem. The title of emperor could only be passed on to one son. It was indivisible. Charlemagne got lucky, in the worst way possible. Only one of his sons, Louis the Pious, survived into adulthood. Louis was able to divide his kingdom in a way that would look familiar to us today. The Western Kingdom will be controlled by mainly Carolingians until the crowning of Hugh Capet. The Middle Kingdom will eventually be divided with parts joining France, parts Italy, and parts going to Germany. Finally, the Eastern Kingdom will begin forming Germany. For this series, we're only interested in the rulers of the Western Kingdom. Descent from Charlemagne was a big deal throughout the medieval period. It probably still is today among certain circles. William the Bastard had to persuade Matilda of Flanders to marry him in spite of his illegitimacy. His reasons for even attempting this were mainly based on her being a descendant of Charlemagne and an overall amazing woman. Her Carolingian six times great-grandmother, Judith of Flanders, had been one of the few Carolingian princesses who was not sent to a convent. Hugh Capet's grandmothers were two others. Hugh Capet and his descendants until Philip V would take note of their descent from Charlemagne when appropriate, or when they needed to show off. This all but stopped with Philip V's crowning, because their descent was through women, and by denying power to those who descended from female lines, they now trace their legitimacy and power only through Hugh Capet. Hugh Capet, much like Pepin the Short, benefited both from his own political acumen and that of his father. Hugh the Great had been the Duke of the Franks and the Count of Paris, two titles that were not dissimilar to Mayor of the Palace, and the parallels can be drawn between Hugh the Great and Charles Martel. Both used their power behind the throne to help their children rise to positions of power even higher than their own. Their sons would found dynasties that would last for generations and control large areas of Europe. They were both great military leaders. Hugh Capet, unlike Pippin, benefited oddly from having only one son. His kingdom didn't need to be divided, and his son, Robert II, probably a well-chosen name pointing back to Robert I, Hugh Capet's grandfather, was able to set up a single kingly succession. This did require Robert II to promise a younger son, the Duchy of Burgundy, which will come up a few times in this miniseries and caused said younger son to rebel against his older brother until the duchy was granted. Now, I've brought up the Robertians a few times. The family takes its name from Robert the Strong, the grandfather of Hugh the Great. Two of his sons will be king, and his granddaughter will be queen consort. During the Carolingian period, there were two depositions of Carolingian kings, Charles III the Fat and Charles III the Simple. Yes, they have the same regnal number. Charles the Fat often wasn't always counted in lists of French rulers. Charles the Fat was deposed in favor of Odo, or Eude, the first Robertian king. He ruled for almost 10 years and was a respected military leader. 
After his death, the nobility supported Charles the Simple, originally meant to convey his forthright nature, later used to insult his intelligence and sanity towards the end of his reign, a Carolingian as king. This Charles, by the way, is the one who had signed the Treaty of saint Clair-Saint-Ept with Rollo, the first Norman count, the ancestor of William the Bastard, featured in the last series. Charles was overthrown by his nobles in favor of Odo's younger brother, Robert I. Robert was succeeded by his son-in-law, Rudolf or Raoul, the last Robertian king. I did find it interesting that a son-in-law was included, because that, again, would be inheritance through a female line. I will get into more detail regarding the last Carolingian kings in a later miniseries because many of their children or grandchildren were passed when Hugh Capet became king of the Franks. Through just a short look at Frankish royal history, it's easy to see that women, while not able to rule directly, were not stopped from passing on their claims. So what went wrong when it was Joan II of Navarre's turn? Please join me next week as I share Joan's story, explain why she would never rule, at least in France, and start the tale of why France would both never have a female king, nor any kings descended from a female line. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at pastpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash pastpod. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.